Welcome to the MBP, the Micah Brown podcast, where I have the privilege of connecting you, my listeners, my audience, my friends with interesting people in an intentional way. I do that through two facets. One is I, I know that right now we, we tend to miss out on the relational aspect of being fellow human beings. A lot of times we'll address other people based on the statistics that they're mentioning or the facts that they're mentioning and miss the whole point is that we're two human beings interacting. So the way I approach that is through connecting with my guests first in a personal way. What obstacles have they overcome? What is their background like? What's their family like? What personal things are they engaged in right now so that you can better connect with them, relate with them, and understand where they're coming from? Maybe you have something in common. Who knows? We won't know until we ask, right? And then the second aspect of that is by getting into what interesting things are they doing? That could be in their professional life. That could be in something that they're just involved with outside of their typical nine to five job. Um, it could be any number of things. Maybe it's just something on the public stage. Nonetheless, those are the two sides of the same coin that make up a person. And I want to get into knowing more about each side of uh, that, that person that I get to have on the show, get to interview. I really appreciate you listening right now. Make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss out on any great interviews that I have upcoming. And in addition to that, I want to thank you for supporting the podcast. If you want to continue to do so, you can, I'm going to have other ways coming up soon, but for now, by getting your free trial through audibletrial.com forward slash MBP, not only will you be supporting the podcast, but that gives you an easy opportunity to look up some of the books that we've mentioned on previous episodes, maybe some of the guests have mentioned, and listen to those for free for 30 days. I would strongly recommend you keep it because it's actually a really great resource to have um, anytime that you're driving or just doing something, maybe lawn care outside of your own home. Who knows what it is? But it's a great resource to have. So again, audibletrial.com forward slash MBP. And anytime you sign up for a free new account, that will support the podcast. So I thank you in advance for that. Finally, to some very specific people who have supported this podcast already. First, to Alvin Brown, who has helped set up this podcast, get it off the ground, get it going, and continues to support me behind the scenes. Second would be to the man, the myth, the legend who has created our music that we now use on this show, Isaiah Cruz. Phenomenal musician, even more phenomenal human being. And last but not least, I want to thank you to the sponsorship that Thelma's Treats has offered to the Micah Brown podcast. Guys, listen, here's the thing. Here's how this went down. I saw an ice cream sandwich and I thought that looks very delicious and it's super hot here in Austin, Texas. So what did I do? Like a normal sane human being, I bought the ice cream sandwich, ate it before I even made it to my car. I thought that's amazing. I need more of that in my life. Reached out to Thelma's and just said, hey, y'all make a fantastic product. I want more. Is there anything I can do to help you guys out? They said, just get the word out. I can't tell you how easy it is for me to tell you about Thelma's treats. If you need a good ice cream sandwich, if your kids need a good ice cream sandwich, if it's way too hot outside and you just need something to put a smile on your face, get yourself an ice cream sandwich. Treat yourself, as they say on Parks and Rec. That's all I got. Enjoy. My guest today is Brian Flanagan. Brian is a native of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and a 1971 graduate of Louisiana State University, but 
he didn't let that stop him from being successful. He began his career as a delivery boy for the IBM Corporation in Baton Rouge. He then invested the next 14 years with IBM as a salesman, a, quote, people manager, and a sales instructor at IBM's National Training Center. In 1984, Brian joined the Zig Ziglar Corporation in Dallas, Texas. For the next 20 years, he served clients in a variety of industries, ranging from professional services to high-tech to pharmaceutical companies. In 2005, Brian founded Flanagan Training Group. In this capacity, he designs and delivers training programs that improve team and individual productivity and growth. Humor is more natural to him than not much else, and anytime he speaks, his audience laughs while still learning how to be the best in their profession. Anyone, literally anyone who meets Brian will leave with knowledge, encouragement, and a smile. With that being said, it's my honor to have on my show today as my guest and my friend, Brian Flanagan. Mr. Flanagan, I appreciate you being on the Michael Brown podcast. How are you today? Uh, my pleasure. I'm doing well. Good. I know um, you, you've told me your family has been dealing with some health issues, but it sounds like at least things are headed in a generally correct direction. Yeah. Is that, that the case? Yeah, I've, got, I've got three generations of women living with me that are high risk during this virus. And so you're, from mother-in-law to wife down to the 35-year-old daughter, but we're doing fine. Thank goodness it's the women who are sick because the guys couldn't handle it. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> Having had COVID myself, I am very grateful that I was the one that caught it because if Elizabeth caught it, we'd all be just messed up. Oh, we wouldn't know I, which way was up. You do not want me to be your primary caregiver. <laughs> Love that. Um, I wanted to start with just our, our conversation today, just a general background. Uh, share for us a little bit of what you've experienced in life growing up, how you met your wife, uh, kids, anything that you'd want to talk about. I did share um, a little bit in your introduction that you've seen, but wanted to give you the floor to start with a little sure. bit of your background. Sure. I had an idyllic childhood. I was raised by two Christian parents who the salt of the earth. I was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. My mom and dad had my brother about nine years before me and my sister three years before. And I just had one of those childhoods. It was I had no complaints. They allowed us to do what we wanted to do is, and be safe. Make sure they had a corrective course and we got off, off track a little bit. And my, my youth was filled mainly with sports. I was a sports guy. So my dad played professional baseball Never made it to the big leagues. He met my mother in 1936 because of baseball. They moved from north and central Louisiana down to Baton Rouge to take a job at Exxon. My dad was recruited to pitch, coach, organize, recruit the semi-pro baseball team. So wow. we, were, we were raised by a dad who used a lot of baseball analogies. And so I, I went to school there. The life changer for me was that in 1966, I had a blind date with a lady named Cindy Katie, who became my wife 50 years ago. And that, that was a turning point. Obviously, I, I, found, I found the strongest woman I could, and I married her. It took us four years, but uh, we got married while we were in her senior year in college, and Micah, my second senior year in college. So we've been married <laughs> for lap. 50 years. For, yeah. Victory lap. Yeah, and, and we, had, we, got, we had so much confidence in our marriage that we actually got married on Friday the 13th, November 13th, 
right in the third <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and the reason we did is that LSU played Mississippi State on Friday, the four, on Saturday the 14th. So we've been married 50 years. Uh, we moved to Dallas. I was with IBM for a number of years, and eight years into that tenure, we moved to Dallas. We adopted our first child. Patrick and, and Quinn are both adopted from the Methodist Mission Home in San Antonio, Texas. We're, we're blessed, uh, unlike you, who created your children through unskilled labor. <laughs> we actually had to qualify to be parents. They took fingerprints. So that, that's my background with my family. My son's now 40, living in Austin. They have our first Wonderful guy. Wonderful guy. He's a, he's a good guy. His mother did good with him. And we have a daughter that's 35, <laughs> and we live in Plano, Texas, and enjoy it here. And I'm still working. I'm a trainer. I train primarily sales and presentation skills. And just for those listening, it's not plain old Texas. It's Plano, Texas. I know I have some other people from around the United States and world listening. It's not plain old Texas. That's not an accent. That's actually a place. Yes, yeah, that's not an accent. It's actually a, a place. Yes, sir. So you're, you're now, you've transitioned from working at IBM and you've got, you know, grown kids and everything, but now you're training people and that's with your company. So just kind of briefly, how long have you been doing that with your own company? Yeah, my professional career, I started off as, as a delivery boy with IBM, as I say, my second senior year. And I was lucky because my grades weren't that good. I, I did finish, but it, it, it was rough. And I went to work for IBM as a delivery boy my last year. We graduated, got married during our senior year in college. Cindy went to teach school, and then I was a delivery boy for the, the last year. Then they hired me, and I sold typewriters and copiers with the IBM Corporation. That was back in the day before the explosion with the new technology. So I did that in 1978. They, they promoted me to the National Training Center here in Dallas, as a sales instructor who couldn't sell, those who can do, those who can't teach, and those who can't teach, <laughs> teach sales. And I got here in 1978, had the fortune of meeting a guy named Zig Ziglar. I begged him for a job. I went out to California for a couple of years to earn my manager stripes, came back and went to work for Zig in 1984. Worked for him for about 29 years. And the last part of my career, I've been on my own with Flanagan Training Group. Excellent. Love that. We're going to get into a little bit more about Zig and that whole transition yeah. um, and what you learned. But the first and most important question uh, I like to start with, with any of my, my guests on the show is what obstacles or events in your life have most shaped your character and how you can offer as many or as few examples as you like. Well, I've had a lot of shaping to do. <laughs> <laughs> Still a work in progress like me. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, the first event that, that really happened that, that shaped my, my life was when I was, I was 18. And May 7th, 1966, I had a blind date with Cindy. And uh, one of us fell in love. Uh, it was me. <laughs> it wasn't her. And unfortunately, she regained her sight and wouldn't go out with me until December of 1966 playing hard I did a lot of selling in, in that time uh, but Cindy and I've been together a long time and that that was a huge part of my life that that really gave me purpose and direction uh, my dad died in 1968 when I was a sophomore and that was a that, that was that made me grow up a little bit and I mourned him uh, probably a semester and I well yeah probably two semesters 
because it was March of 1968, and Dad and I were real close. And that was a big blow for me. But it did shape me and, and reminded me what Dad had taught us. And he did a great job of teaching. My dad did not have a college degree. My mother did. But Dad worked two jobs. He worked 33 years with, in those days, it was Esso, but now it's Exxon. But he also took a part-time job with State Farm selling insurance part-time. And he did that until he died. He worked with Exxon. My mother worked with him. So I saw a work ethic. Then my brother got out of the Marine Corps. Now he joined the Marines because our dad was too strict. But he got out <laughs> and he and my mother worked together until my brother retired, probably when he was in his mid-70s. And my mother retired at 90. But that, so, wow. so dad, and, dad died, had a great impact. And then the, the, the biggest impact, on my professional career happened when I got a hold of Zig Ziglar's material and Zig Ziglar's material really turned me around. Now he was a motivational speaker, a trainer. When I, when I got to know him, he was, he had authored four books. He then went on to author 28 more. And that led me to, to work with him later on. But the biggest thing that happened to me, Michael was, I was always in church, but I was a belonger, not a believer. And of course, a major thing that happened was when I had a, developed a personal relationship with Christ. And that went into 1988 when I found out this little term, this little five-letter word called grace. I had earned my, I tried to play basketball at LSU without a scholarship and I was a, a walk-on. So I had to earn my, my place on the team. I had to earn Cindy's second date in December of 1966. So I had to earn my sales, earn my promotion. So, so I was always a performance-based guy. For me to have self-acceptance, I, I did it on performance-based. And when I read that all the winning had been done, all the battling had been done 2,000 years ago, that was a foreign concept to me. My life has changed because somebody loved me so much that he went to the cross for me. And I didn't know that ideal. I had no idea about that in 19... 88, a counselor told me, go find out what that is. And so I didn't have a Damascus Road experience per se, but over a period of time, I discovered grace. And that happened when I was 40. So for the last 32 years, as Zig Ziglar would say, if you find Christ now, it'll help you now, but it'll also keep the heat off of you later. So that's, <laughs> that, was, that was the biggest change was that when I found Christ. Man, that's I, I love that. Um, two, really, three different um, experiences. I, my my relationship with my wife is, is also one of my biggest events, um, and most shape my character. How far down? This is almost equally as important. How far down on your list of colleges was LSU, and who suckered you into going there? Well, I got offers from uh, the Harvard of the South. Oh yeah, which was Mississippi Tulane. State, Tulane. Oh, okay, because I I've got people from Mississippi State, people from Ole Miss, oh, yeah. both saying those are the Harvard. Exactly. Well, the joke is when I was at LSU, it was just a it was just a big high school with ashtrays. Dang. <laughs> I've been a tiger, I've and it hasn't tiger. changed since. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, no ambition. Had to get an LSU tiger. Had to get an LSU graduate off your front porch pay for the pizza. But I Dang. was a tiger. I wanted to, at one time I wanted to play football for them. That didn't work. 
but I could play basketball a little bit. So I was, I wanted to be a tiger and be on the LSU basketball team. So sure enough, I went out and made the team. The problem was the guy that was in my position was a guy named Pete Maravich, who just happened to be the greatest offensive player in the history of the game. We didn't know that when he started as a freshman. And in those days, freshmen couldn't play varsity. So we had a freshman team and I made the freshman team without a scholarship. And then Pete went on and averaged 44.2 points a game for the next three seasons. Uh. <laughs> we saw the beginning. I didn't, I didn't play much with Pete, but I did shower several times with him. <laughs> I, I was in the locker room, but that's okay. We, that's okay. We fine for 54 points one night. He got 53. Yeah, I was about to say, how many did he get? But that got me in Sports Illustrated. I, I wrote a letter to the editor of Sports Illustrated. They had an article about Pete Maravich, because nobody's heard of him these days. You're too young to remember him. But they had an article about how great he was in a college. And I, I wrote the article basically said, my letter basically said, we didn't know what we had. But what we had was a guy that was good. And the way he got good, he dedicated his life to it. And in, and in that, I put, uh, he had my scholarship. <laughs> and we combined for 54 points. Well, I got an email back from Sports Illustrated that said, well, Mr. Flanagan, we can't confirm that you actually got 54 points with him. So I had to go back to my archives and look at the box scores. I scored a single point. <laughs> and, and before I could write them back, the next day they said, well, if it was that against the Baton Rouge Hawks, which was an AAU team. If that, on this date, I said, yeah, that was it. And so they published my letter. <laughs> That's great. And for, for those wondering, that is a version of sales. You're sell, selling yourself to ESPN saying, put me in there. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sorry, Sports Illustrated. Yeah, it was Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated. There yeah. you go. Yeah. I know you, you mentioned uh, your two children. How many grandchildren do you have and how many grandchildren do you wish you have? Just to add a little bit of pressure on Pat and your, his sister. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on my children. My, in our church circle of the 16 people we have in our small group, we're the only ones that aren't grandparents. So 18 months ago, Patrick yeah. and Jennifer finally made us grandparents. And I show this baby's <laughs> picture everywhere because some people claim their, grand, their grandkids are, are the prettiest in the world. Well, I got proof. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, so we have one grand grandson who lives in Austin, and we uh, we don't see him enough, but we do a lot of FaceTime. There you go. I, I love that, and I've had the pleasure of meeting Pat. Um, he's a fantastic man, and I I know that, like you said, he was adopted. I'd love for you to share about um, both of your children's adoption and what has that meant to your family. I'd love for people out there to hear how it has affected you and your family dynamic. We knew each other for four years before we got married. We were compatible when we got to, and we were trying to have children in Baton Rouge, but those days in vitro wasn't around. I, I tell people, hopefully humorously, when we got to Dallas, we went to a fertility specialist. Now we'd never heard of a fertility specialist in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And so they said, what, what, what was he like? I said, well, he came out with a bison head on and a <laughs> stick and a, something around his neck and a, and a garlic. <laughs> Shaker, yeah. He didn't know what he was doing. I mean, it was like a voodoo. It was like a witch doctor. And he told us it much. He said, you know, we really haven't perfected this, so you guys may want to start the adoption proceedings. And, and Micah, they never could really pinpoint what was the cause of us being in our infertility. So we wrote to 21 
charities around the nation, around Texas, and the Methodist Mission Home, the Southwest Maternity Center, there in, on Whitby Road in, in San Antonio, met with us. We went to a church, had a group meeting, then we went down there and interviewed. They, yeah, they do take they do take fingerprints. They look under the bed. They have home visits. So we, we worked real hard. And, and then a year and a half later, Patrick was placed with us. We went out to California and tried to adopt out there. And it was weird. California got its own set of circumstances. So we worked real hard to get back to Dallas. And two years after we got back to Dallas, Quinn was placed with us in, in January of 1985. The and you know, because you, you tried to have children and you guys have had your challenges yep. with that with Elizabeth and you. Yep. Uh, anytime we're talking about children, obviously we're, we're talking about a sensitive issue and, and heartfelt. We don't know the difference. So when, when people ask us questions, how is it different from having a natural child? Well, we didn't adopt one, then have one ourselves. We didn't have one, then adopt one. Both of our children were placed with us the God's so grace. There's no comparison to, to go off of. So we, we did the same thing I would have done had I, had I known that Cindy was pregnant. Uh, when, when we started the proceedings, I'm very much into family. So I, would, I wrote Patrick and later on Quinn, I wrote them letters before they were ever born, before they were placed with us. And I talked about our family and about our background and what we were going through. And then up until about, <laughs> until they started, they didn't want to read them anymore. Up until about the sixth or seventh grade, I stopped writing them letters about what's happening, what dad did to change careers, you know, those kind of things. Only because I knew I'd forget. And if they ever wanted to know a basis of how much we love them and why we did all of this, I would have it in writing. And I'm doing the same thing to Declan. Declan Patrick Flanagan is my grandson. He's with the FBI, full-blooded Irish. And I want Declan to know that his grandmom and grandpop uh, love him unconditionally and we're so proud of him and his mom and dad are great people. So I, I encourage that to anybody out there, whether you're a grandparent or whether you're a parent or whether you're about to be a mom or dad, I believe that the more you correspond and leave them those things, they can look back on it and, and perhaps understand things that mom and dad didn't have time to tell them uh, told them, but they forgot things like that. Got it. How, how did that, as they were growing up, um, I, I know my sister has three adopted kids. She has two biological kids and then three adopted girls, all sisters from the same mother and father. Good, good for them. Yeah. Which was, it wasn't planned that way. They adopted two and then the mom got pregnant with the same dad and had a third and yeah. just, they ended up with Janae as well. Um, I know some of the struggles that they've been through, some of the conversations that the kids even talk about with them, uh, the girls talking about their tummy mommy and where's my tummy mommy and, well, are you my mommy? I mean, you're my mommy, but, you know, that sort of thing. Did any of that take place? I, I would assume so to some degree or another because of the situation. It's the same adoption, but how how did that dynamic occur in your world as they grew up and and what I don't think you said maybe you did what age were Pat and Quinn when they came to you Pat uh, Patrick was nine days old and Quinn was three weeks old so Got it's it. a different dynamic from what your sister did she yeah. adopted children that weren't infants what happens is that 
I've, I don't, I'm not shy. I'm pretty transparent about telling people, for example, when I get in front of a group, I'll say how many have children, how many don't have children, how many are too bitter to talk about it. And, and I say that we were blessed our children were adopted. And that's a little subtle way of saying with all the abortion going on, there's an option. And I'm hopefully yeah. a normal guy in front of these salespeople or this group of people. And I think I'm a normal guy and th normal people adopt babies. So if you don't haven't looked at the adoption option, please do so. And I don't say that, but I indicate it. And, and so we, we were blessed with Patrick at nine days and Quinn with three weeks. There's a big challenge with adopting an older child, very much needed. Right. right. In our, our days, Micah, they did, they had closed adoption. So we went down to the Methodist mission home in San Antonio they would announce to the and the last trimester that some of the pregnant women would be on campus and they would announce we have couples coming in to tour the facility from Houston, San Antonio and Plano and the girls would go to their dorm rooms. They didn't want to be seen. It, it was still a you know, scarlet letter. That was closed adoption. Later on, five years later with Quinn, it was more open and we had the opportunity to either meet the birth parents or not meet the birth parents or the birth mother. So now that I'm, I was on an adopt, a Christian adoption agency up here in Plano and in, in Frisco. And what couples would do, it's changed so much. They would put together lack of a, a better term. They would put together a scrapbook. My dog is squeezing a ball in the background. They would put together a scrapbook and present it to the different mothers, the, the mothers to be, and they would choose, the moms chose, who would they'd, they'd place their baby with. So I was on the adoption agency and we had our first meeting and I was doing, I thought I was doing pretty well. Then they handed out these dossiers and they said, I said, what are these? Well, these are the people that have applied, but we've got to okay them, we got to prove them. Well, everybody's got letters from their minister, their boss, whatever. No, no, we want to make sure that well, here's a lady from Pittsburgh. Why are we not looking at her, a couple from Pittsburgh? Well, because the birth mother wouldn't have a relationship with the baby if the baby was born in Texas and we, the, birth, the, the adoptive parents are somewhere else. Well, I, that never occurred to me because we'd adopted so long ago that we yeah. didn't have a relationship with the birth parents. And we didn't necessarily yeah. want one. Now, fast forward... Normally, what, what we find is that the girls, the adoptive girls, are the ones that really want to find out who their birth parents are. Quinn, my, our, our daughter Quinn, doesn't care. Patrick went out and investigated. Yeah, he told me about this. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it's a great story. So uh, his, his birth dad and his birth dad's half-sister and his birth dad's wife, they were at his wedding, which, which was kind of a neat closure. Yeah. Now, I've heard stories that didn't go that well, but at the same time, I, I, we encourage them to, to seek their birth parents if, in fact, they did it the right way, and Patrick did. Yeah, and he was much older when he decided to, to look into that. Yeah, 35, 36. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was – that uh, adoption is something that Elizabeth and I have gone back and forth on. We've seen it with my sister's family, um, a handful of my friends – Justin and David, they both uh, have adopted kids. 
at different ages. One was a little bit older. And then in the case of Dave, they adopted an infant brand new, like went to the hospital and everything. So it's something that we've talked about. It's not necessarily something we feel that drive that urge, that calling to this is what we need to do, but it's definitely something we've talked about. So I always like to hear other people's stories of what has it been like? Cause your, your experience, like you said, is very different than adopting a kid who's already five or four or something able to cognitively understand a little bit of what's going on. It's a very different dynamic. Yeah. And, and there's all kinds of studies and books and we encourage kids to read those and talk about those and go to counseling about it. Uh, my, my little girl really has, has no desire to do so. But, but Patrick, my mother lived to be 99 and I've got her innards and I would get off of a, I'd get out of a doctor's appointment. I'd call my mom and say, mom, thanks for your innards. My triglycerides run to control, no cholesterol problem. <laughs> I'd go home and tell the kids, thank God I have my mother, your, your grandmother's innards. Well, Patrick's term was, well, I don't know whose innards I have. <laughs> and, and, that was, and he told me that at 35. And I said, well, son, I'm sorry. I never thought about that. But sure, it'd be nice to know. So that's when he went on his quest. Yeah. And he, and he did it right. And it was, it, was, it was very meaningful. What's interesting, and this is a, a little bit of a rabbit trail, something Elizabeth and I have been talking about is um, figuring out our own heritages of what our you know, background, our, our genetic makeup sort of thing. And in a way, it's kind of the same thing. Where did I come from? Mm-hmm. But for people who were not adopted, they were just birthed into their family. No, no choice in that matter as far as like family placement for the parents and kids and all that. But we don't really think about that a whole lot. I'm sure for Pat, it's a top of mind question all the time of, okay, I know who my dad is. I know who my mom is, but where did I come from? You know, so it's, it's, I think it's a good exercise for people to investigate where did I come from, both from a, in, in his case, a familial standpoint. Uh, in our case, it's like a genetic heritage ancestor type of situation. Yeah, but as long as the birth parents are willing, you don't want to interrupt somebody's life. Right. And and what happened is that Patrick went on one of these registries, a one, two, three, or ancestry, whatever, and he swabbed and his birth father swabbed, and they kind of came together. And then Patrick found out the story of of what happened. And then it was, like I said, very enlightening, very strong in a very positive way. Yeah, I've heard of some of those instances not resulting in a in a very amiable situation, yeah. um, and it's it's tough. Uh, in the theme of relationships, I wanted to ask you about your interactions with strangers, which may sound funny. There's a point oh, to this. <laughs> who, told, who told you about that? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Pat told me about <laughs> that. As far okay. back as he can remember, he he always knew that you were striking up conversations with strangers on planes and cars basically anywhere which for the record sounds a lot like my mother just she mm-hmm. ha- she has this invisible sign on her forehead as she says that says tell me your life story so anywhere she goes she's picking up conversations but you usually made the conversation in, in his words and I've now witnessed this firsthand you usually make the conversation about them and always have that person laughing about something and I can say this is 100% accurate to my own personal experience with you because from the onset of meeting you I felt comfortable talking to you and I knew I wanted to have a friendship with you as much as you would let me. So I have to know 
when you meet someone for the first time, what goes through your mind or what's your goal for that conversation? Is there, is it just completely natural and you just, whatever, I'll talk to anybody that talks to me or is it something that you've kind of set out to do? Maybe something that Zig had instilled in you or something that you had picked up along the way. Where are you in the birth order of your, your sisters and brothers? What, what number are you in the, I'll let you take a guess first. Where were you? Were you first born? Nope. Okay. Uh, See, I'm the baby of the family. Okay, so you and I have got the got the curse. Yeah, and you're the third, right? Uh, I'm the last. I, yeah, I'm I'm the baby. But you had two older siblings. You said uh, uh-huh. brother yeah, and sister. One that's ten years older. One that's three years old. Well, so my brother is ten years older than me, also, and my sister is eight years older than me. So I, I know a little well, bit of how you feel. So 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 there there's a eight year gap between you and your sister. Right. So I I have. Um, kind of what Elizabeth also has, because her two half brothers are, are much older than her. Also, I think thirteen and ten or twelve and ten, something like that. And we both have, you know, you talk about those like uh, inner family dynamics of the oldest child syndrome or youngest or whatever. Yeah, we both kind of have the youngest child, but also the only child mixed in. A That's little right. Bit. That's right. Because there's a five year gap, and usually the five year gap is when it turns. Right. So now check this out. The first 23 U.S. astronauts in outer space were first born. 21 were first born, two were onlys, which meant that they had a leadership position at their homes that you and I as babies of the family didn't have. So when mom and dad left and said, take care of your younger brother and sister, well, if they got in trouble, they blamed it on you. Absolutely. Still do. So we, we, but so what happens is the, my, my brother, the Marine, he was very independent. He, he, had, he wanted his own agency, didn't want to go into management. He just wanted to run his business. Very driven. My sister in between, she kept my brother from beating me up. So she was a mediator. <laughs> and then I come along, I get no attention. So I act out. I become the class clown. That resonated still are, a little bit there. Still are to this day. Yeah. I, I would say uh, my actual school experience was probably different. I was, I was bullied and picked on. But as I've uh, grown up, I am definitely the one. I mean, you know this from firsthand. We both have those one-liner quips or the, the quick-witted remarks about whatever. In, in my situation, it's usually dad jokes. or, or yeah, it, I, I, have to, dad jokes yeah. I feel like you'll resonate with this. I, I've told Elizabeth before, I have to be really careful because – I'm quick witted, but sometimes words fly out a lot faster than they probably should. And I, I get myself in trouble because I just say the, the first thing top of mind. And, and sometimes it's socially unacceptable and I have to be real careful about who I say it around. My, my wife, Cindy has 10 impeccable sentences and that's one of them. I said to Cindy one, one time back when I was about 30, I said, I'm as funny as Jay Darden. She said, no, you're not. Why not? Because he's in control. <laughs> mean in control he has a thermostat you don't have a thermostat he can control when he needs to stop you know, your valve is open wide open oh yeah and there's no filter my a buddy of mine at ibm met my mother one time at some kind of function and said well mrs flanagan i work with your son brian and she said is he still trying to entertain the world <laughs> So, so what happened was that my defense mechanism when I 
my, my, the, the reason I love Zig so much is that my inferiority complex was with me until I was 30. So I was always burdened with potential, I guess, and didn't think I deserved it. So I used humor both in my high school and certainly in the fraternity at LSU. My, my humor was my defense mechanism. But here's what I've learned to answer your question. What I learned a long time ago, Micah, is that when I leave a conversation, and like, let's say we left the coffee shop in North Dallas and you were going to make some sales calls and I was going to go take a nap. When, when we left that conversation. Because <laughs> I wore you out that much. <laughs> was that the racquetball time or the coffee? Are no, you no, the racquetball went out and ran five miles. <laughs> but I asked myself the question, after leaving this conversation, did I know more about Micah or did Micah know more about me? And that, that really is also a sales proposition. When you leave a conversation, a sales interaction with a potential customer, who knows more about whom? So my job is to, and plus I'm interested in it. I mean, it's nice to know that you play drums and you get, and you guys move to wherever you move to with, uh, to, to see the church and that you went to A&M because your transcripts wouldn't be, you know, all those things. Right. <laughs> So when I leave a conversation, that's one thing that I, that I value is that I think I'll let you talk more than I did. So yesterday I was at one of the few face-to-face -face network meetings that we go to, and they always wand your forehead to make sure you don't have a fever. Right. <laughs> and, and that's my goal going in is I want, I want to make sure after I have an interaction with a potential networking referral partner that I know more about them than they know about me. And so it's just asking and listening. And, and I've come, and here's a, here's a quick way to do that. I'll give you a sales lesson as well as a conversation lesson. POGO, P-O-G-O, that's a sales. I use it in sales, but I also right. use it in, in meeting people and building relationships. P stands for person. O stands for organization. G stands for goals. And O, the second O stands for obstacles to those goals. So when I was at the networking meeting, I, I go up and introduce myself to Bobby. Bobby, you haven't been, been here before. What's your function at this function? And sometimes they'll catch it, sometimes they won't. I'll say, Bobby, what brings you here? And he, and he gets a puzzled look on his face. I say, I'm here for the food. So I'm just trying <laughs> to break the ice and let them know, hey, if, if you're a stranger, somebody brought you here and they haven't showed up yet, it's okay, let's mingle. And, and I try to do it with humor. I try to do it with levity. Sometimes it works. Not everybody buys my humor or my levity, obviously. I feel that. <laughs> I, I resemble that, yeah. So, so that, that, that's, that's the, kind of the spirit behind it. I love that. I, that's something that as I've been married, um, I voiced to Elizabeth one time I, that I love to hear about other people, but I typically – don't think of good questions right off the bat. I mean, even for this conversation, I, I sat down and thought through what I would ask you to have meaningful conversation. But on the fly, it's something I've had to develop because I'm, if you want to just open the valve wide open and tell me everything about your life and everything, I, I'm here for it. You're open, yeah. I'm very open to, to receiving. The trouble is, first of all, not hardly anybody really does that, um, <laughs> right, when meeting somebody. But I don't, think through fast enough questions to ask. And of course, I realized this once I got married because 
as you probably have witnessed, you, you get home. Oh, how's uh, how's Adrian's family doing? How's how's his wife? Are things going well? I know that this was happening with so and so's son. And did you ask him about that? No. What I I wasn't even th- thinking about. Well, you knew that they were in the hospital. Right? Well, yeah, but I didn't. I figured he'd tell me if he wanted to talk about it. You know, so I've had to practice asking questions. There, there are two sexes. I don't know about genders these days, but women are really more relationship and they want a little bit more detail on relationships. We want to fix things as guys. So we don't necessarily get into the relationship questions. Uh, Pogo allows me to find out, let's say that you're an accountant and you don't want to be open about yourself. You're a little bit more of an introvert. Well, when I start asking questions about the person, well, Bobby, what brings you, what kind of work are you in? Now, here's how I ask that question. I'll say, Michael, what do you do? I'm sorry, Michael, legally, what do you do for a living? Now, if they laugh at that or smile at that like you just did, I'll know that maybe they want to play a little bit. But if they look at me like I've got two heads, which I get a lot, then I don't spend (laughs) much time in the person. But I'll say, what type of work are you in? How long have you done it? Where do you do it? What were you doing before this? So I, I can... I can read the other person to know how open and playful they want to be versus the fact that they, I haven't earned the right with them to be playful yet. And I'll back off of that. And sometimes I miss it and I'll I'll admit that. And sometimes I can be overbearing very much. I admit that, but I try to play off of, and then, and then I may ask somebody, what are your goals? What are you trying to achieve by joining a networking group? So I don't get the obstacles necessary necessarily, but I can ask questions about the person, the organization, and then what are they trying to achieve, you know, where, where they want to be. Uh, and it's surface. It's not real deep because I haven't earned the right to go deep unless they give me the right. And, and they do that through their body language or through their answers. But there's a system to most things. I'm a big believer that selling is a process. Communication is a process. And if you have a process, you can plug into that and, and it takes the pressure off of you. That's brilliant. I would love for just our audience that's listening and probably either driving in their car, sitting at home, working. Can you tell us one more time what POGO stands for? Of course, right as you take a drink. <laughs> when I meet somebody for the first time, I start with a P, ask question about the person. And that could be how long you lived in Leander? Where were you before? What kind of work do you do? And that, that, that kind of leads into the occupation or the organization. But if it's a social thing, I can still ask how big your family, you know, where your kids are older, where do they live? Are they close? Are they far away? How many grand, you know, all of those things still is about the occupation, the organization, the family. Um, sometimes I don't get to goals. The, the third step is, asking them what they're trying to achieve. And then the last question, which I don't get to socially, is the obstacles to achieve those goals. For the salespeople or managers listening to this, uh, it's really just a sales call on, let me get to know you, your organization, what are you trying to achieve? If I can help you achieve that, I become a hero. What obstacles are keeping you from achieving that? And if I can remove that obstacle, or obstacles, perhaps I become a hero. And that sets us into, into the sales call. The, that, and I tell people, like, Mike, I'd like to start out by asking a few questions about yourself, a little bit about the organization, some of the goals, the objectives you have, 
and then maybe some of the barriers that keep you from reaching those, that'll take about 20 minutes. Is that still a good time frame for you? And so what I'm trying to do is kind of set the course. Now, I don't do that relationally, but I do that in the business sense because normally we have a finite time that the prospect has given me. But I still try to start with the person and find out they don't want to talk about themselves. Then I'll make a, as they say these days, a pivot. I'll make yeah. that adjustment. There you go. Yeah, I was about to say, it. make a pivot, <laughs> as they say these days. Uh, before we kind of jump over into the professional, which I, I feel like even as we're talking, as would be the case for most human beings, personal and professional are intertwined uh, in many ways. Yeah. But you told me this once, this list, and I would love for people listening to hear it. But what are Flanagan's four rules for success? Well, unfortunately, you added one. Let me see. Four. Well, here, here's my first three. And I'll, okay, I'll three. I, I might have had it wrong. <laughs> added yeah. one, too. Here, here are my first three, and, and the others are honorable mention. Let's do that. Number one rule of success, okay. and you, you live this. You know this, Micah. Definitely. The number one rule of success, marry well. If you marry well, you'll have the home court advantage. And you can go out and you can perform your task. As when Cindy was teaching, I, I supported her. When I was selling with IBM, she supported me. She wanted to be a homemaker. She wanted to raise children. We, we were blessed that we had the opportunity to do that. And she's always supported me. And I knew that my home life was solid. My home court advantage was always solid. So number one rule of success to me, marry well. Number two, produce more than you consume. And unfortunately, not to be political or philosophical maybe, but we need to remind our countrymen to do that. We need to produce more than we consume. And the third thing, because I was running out of things to, to talk about, is nothing good ever came out of a bottle. But I, I'll give you, I'll give you my, my honorable mentions. Uh, Dad told us to play all nine innings. Don't take an inning off. And he also told us, show up, show up on time, and show up dressed to play. And I saw him with two jobs, and he lived that. And then my, the one that I made up during baseball season, we were coaching the kids. Good things happen when you work hard. So that may be five or six. I'm not sure. But the number one is still marry well. I'm sorry. That's it. I, I got those down. I'm, I'm going to make sure that I, I share those. Uh, th there's six total uh, that you mentioned there, at least. I'm sure as soon as we get off here, oh, there's one I could have mentioned. But um, for those listening, I remember when Brian mentioned these to me the first time we ever met and had coffee. And my first knee-jerk reaction, I'll be honest with you, was I didn't need to like marry to be successful. But then I started thinking about how my life personally has been different now that I've married Elizabeth. Uh, now that we just celebrated five years together uh, or marriage together. And for me, my confidence level has dramatically changed since marrying Elizabeth, since being with her. And I mean that in a very positive way. I was, people know this that have listened to the show. I've been bullied and picked on a lot growing up. So my external voices from other people have become internal voices and she rewrote the script and we did that through just the daily today i love you because today my compliment for you is and hearing those things that i would have never admitted to myself 
has, has redirected that thought process. And because of that, now I go into new ventures and new experiences with a new level of confidence and I can tackle it because I know I'm good with her. And I've told her frequently, as long as I know things are good between you and me, I can tackle anything that I approach. Yeah. But the instant that something's off, I, I lose my, I say, hold on time out. Let's just, let's back up. I want to make sure we're okay. And then I can move forward. And that's just been my own. I don't know that I necessarily got that from anybody in particular. The whole, as long as we're good, everything else will happen on its own. Um, but that's just a personal practice I've had. And so the, the more I thought about it and tried to play devil's advocate in my mind, which I credit my father for, you know, always see everything, every side of everything as much as you can. But I thought about it. And I th- you know, I, I am more successful because I married well. I would say in my experience. So I appreciate that now. But you ask about my rules of success. Those are. Oh, your for rules. sure. <laughs> so, so, but no, but the, the point is that that's what resonates with you. So for people that aren't married, no, you don't have to be married to be successful, to be happy, uh, to be, to be well-rounded. But that, that was my rule because until I met Cindy, I, like I was lost. Yeah. That's a fair point. Those are my rules. I like to apply whatever you're telling me and, and see if it fits within what I'm doing. But yeah. uh, I would love to kind of transition if there was even a transition. Like I said, that both are pretty intertwined into the professional. Something I, I, I'd like to ask any of my guests on here, what would you consider to be your greatest professional accomplishment either so far or at all? Meaning if you're kind of ending the, the tenure of your professional career at all, if you still see yourself going for a few more years, maybe so far. I tell the story of Edmund Hillary, his first attempt up Mount Everest, he, he failed. He left five of his party dead in the snows of Everest. A group came, asked him to speak, and he walked out on the stage and they applauded him. He didn't think that he needed to be, a, be praised because he failed the first time before he conquered Mount Everest. And he looked at the picture of Mount Everest on one of the walls. He said, Mount Everest, you beat me the first time, but I'm going to beat you the second time because you've grown all you're going to grow, but I am still growing. So my greatest victories after 50 years of marriage, my greatest victories as a husband are ahead of me. After 50 years in the business world, my, my greatest victories are ahead of me. If I looked at my victories professionally, there, there are two things, there are a couple of subsets, but having, having worked for Zig Ziglar, of all the people that asked him for jobs, of all the people that probably begged him like I did, let me go to work for you. Uh, I got the job and I lasted 29 years. And he, he literally still changes my life. Uh, that, that was such a great accomplishment for me to come from where I was to be able to go out and represent him because I held him at such high esteem. That, that was a great victory. A, a side note, a smaller note to that would be, I was in the Philippines in 1993. Now you're looking at a guy that, that couldn't sell. I, I, seriously, when I got to Dallas after six years of selling, I was now a sales trainer and I had no confidence that I could sell. That doesn't mean I didn't sell a lot. I did. I sold my furniture and I sold my car, but I was, I was struggling. So in 1993, after I'd gotten a hold of Zig, 
for several years, obviously. I was in the Philippines, and the sponsor asked us, my partner and I from the Ziegler Corporation, to go out and make a sales call on the national telephone company there in Manila. So I'm sitting there, and I'm making a sales call halfway around the world from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And the guy said, let me go get my partner. Let me go get my, my leadership development training guy. And he said, but I was at your seminar yesterday, and I really appreciate you're using what you taught us. And that oh, was boy. just a confirmation that nobody ever told me that on a sales call before. So that, that, was, a, that, that was a big deal. Yeah, on, on a, a memory. But I, I believe that I'm still growing. I believe my greatest contracts are ahead of me. The, the people that I try to help, I think I've, I've got a great future ahead of me for the end of my career. I love that. My, one of my favorite phrases is you're either growing or you're dying. Yeah. There, either there's... make dust or eat dust. <laughs> like that. I know you spent a great deal of time with Zig and your speaking style is even similar to his. I read that your motivation for working with him started with having read one of his books, but I guess, first of all, is that true? But what was in the book that made you want to shift your career? What was it about Zig Ziglar that made you say, I'm not giving up until he gives me a job? 1978, I get to Dallas. I'm with 24 other people on the marketing training staff. They're from big cities, Kathy's from Chicago, Linda's from New York, Roger's from Boston. Mike was from Atlanta, and I, I was from Baton Rouge, and I didn't, I didn't deserve to be there. And one of my buddies said, go buy this book. So for $12.95, I went to a downtown Dallas bookstore, and I bought a copy of Zig's book entitled See You at the Top. Now, hold on a second. Wait, I'll be right back. For the people in the listening audience, I just got my first book 42 years ago, and, it, and as Mike can see, it's falling apart. But I got the, I... as the as I'm looking at it, the covers are are barely well, they're, even yeah, they're available. Gone. I mean, they're they're not even attached to the book. It's just no, the the binding is gone. Yep. But I'll read I'll read what changed my life on page 48. Zig was talking to me. Now, he wrote this book four years before I read it. But on page 48, he says to me very specifically, you cannot consistently perform in a manner that is inconsistent with the way you see yourself. You cannot consistently perform in a manner that is inconsistent with the way you see yourself. Now, my mother told me that for 30 years. Cindy told me that for the eight years we'd been married. But until I read that, Micah, I was missing success by 12 inches. And that's the distance between my head and my heart. Intellectually, IBM had taught me to be a salesperson. I understood about how to, quote, overcome objections, demonstrate products. But I never felt successful. And Zig said, Brian, let's raise your deserve level. So two years later, after that reading a book, two years later, I go to San Francisco to the largest branch office of the IBM division, and I was their sales manager. What changed? Brian more than the professional. So Zig was building the person. IBM was only building the professional. Now, you need both. You need will and skill. 
And I certainly don't, don't knock IBM. IBM was very good to me. But I, I found out that I needed to invest in myself more than my career. And that was the life changer awesome. for me. I, I jotted down that quote because I, I want to hold on to that one. That's a, that's a good one. There have been a few examples in my own life where it's kind of rocked my own perception of myself. And that's made me want to um, grow as we've been talking about. Have you ever heard of flip flipping? Oh yeah. No. Another repetitive name. Yeah. I've had, I've had the pleasure of meeting him. Uh, I, that meeting was set up because I just emailed somebody that was connected to him and I said, can I just thank him in person? Yeah. He is his book. The flip side is literally the reason my self-confidence has, has gotten and new life. Me with Zig. Yep. Now the problem was I, I read, I read Zig in 78. I didn't read the Bible. I read the one year Bible between June 3rd, 1988 and June 1st, 1989. I wish I'd have read them in a different order, but I wasn't ready. So when, when the student is ready, the teacher will come. And, and, accurate. and having been a teacher, that's accurate. <laughs> yeah. Having been a teacher, it's very accurate. Yeah. What, what was your experience like working with Zig? I know you've, you've mentioned a couple of examples of we got to increase the deserve or increase the deserve level. Yeah. What, what was it about um, your experience working with him that was impactful? Was it, I know you, for example, you just mentioned that IBM was great in their, in their own capacity, in their own right, developing the professional, as you talked about, but Zig focused on developing the person inside of the professional setting. So what else was it like just working for Zig, even from a, what was a typical day like on the job working with him? Well, Zig didn't come to the steerage area where we worked. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My favorite way of introducing Zig, he's the most consistent man I've ever met. So later okay. on, back in the, in the early 2000s, when I tra- – well, I, I say this. In 96, he and his wife and I went overseas for six weeks to a Pacific Rim tour from Australia to New Zealand, back to Australia, to Singapore, to different places, Philippines, et cetera. So I sat at the foot of the mast, and I've got a journal in my room in there, Michael, and I've got two notebooks that I would sit at the foot of the mast, and I'd say, well, how did you come up with this story? And I'd be taking notes, and I said, well, Gene – when he was making these, these stupid decisions that he talks about, where were you? I was his wife. I was right by him, supporting him the whole way. And she kind of got adamant about it. <laughs> and she's a very wonderful. Like, that's a ridiculous question. I was right next to him. <laughs> exactly. And she kind of snapped at me almost in her own way. But I've seen him counsel trouble employees. I've seen him ask a guy from New Zealand who did not, he could not come forth with the money to pay us for a large contract to do three engagements in New Zealand. He was going to lose all kind of money. I've seen Zig at the graveside of his 45 year old daughter, and he's always been Zig. He's the most consistent man I've ever met. He's a good, he was a good finder. He looked for the good in people. He believed in people too much sometimes because that was his fault. He got these deals early in his life because he, he kind of believed too many people. But when he became a Christian in 1972, he wrote a book in 74. In that early 70s, when, when he, the July 4th weekend, he says, he declared his dependence on Christ. Everything changed for him. So all of the stuff he had went through a different filter. 
all of his teachings now went through a spiritual and a scriptural filter. And he got it that way because he asked theologians, he asked prominent ministers, he had their, he had them on the roller decks on the speed dial, if you will, in those days. And that would really turn it around. I met him when he had come out of being secular and being more Christian. So I saw the trueness of Zig's philosophy. And he changed it a bit. He, he did some things. He reworded some things. So I saw him when he was at his prime, and it was really a blessing to, to be with him. Uh, my, my job was to sell training, develop the training, go out and deliver the training. Uh, we worked with seminars with him, but he worked out of his home most of the time that, that I worked with him. He had an office in his home, which was great. But when he came to the office, he was on purpose. He was intentional. When you wanted to talk to him about something that was on your agenda, you set an appointment with him because I honored his time that much. I didn't want to just grab him and say, can you get five minutes in the conference room? I didn't think that was fair because he was so organized. So I, I enjoyed, I learned, I watched people respond to him. I saw how humble he was. He came, we came off the stage in, I, I think, Tampa or Melbourne, Florida. And I said, Zig, you, you hit every point. Man, you backed that up. You had a support point. I said, that was great. And he said to me, we worship an awesome Lord, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Zig, I'm talking about your performance. I don't I don't to talk about no. We are we we worship an awesome God. So Pretty what amazing. what event caused you, I guess, or or was it just a natural next step to split off and and do your own thing, have your own company? Was it? I mean, did Zig kick you out and say, "All right, Brian, time for you to do it on your own," or was it just something well, else? It, I, I kicked myself out the first time. Uh, back the in, first time, okay. Yeah, back, back in 88, yeah, back in 88, uh, I got caught up in my, my profession. I came home one night late, and Cindy said, um, it's easier for me when you're traveling. I'm sorry? It's easier for me when you're not here. What do you mean? You go to nice places, you have concierge service, you have room service, you dine in. Let me tell you something, pal. When you go to bed tonight, there's not going to be a chocolate mint on your pillow. <laughs> I, I, everything was an inconvenience when I got home, and she saw that. So I went to Zig, and I said, I, I need to do something. Can you keep me in town? He said, not right now. We need you on the road. need you to do this, that, and the other. I said, well, here's my resignation letter. And I found a job that kept me in Dallas. And he said, Brian, is this a better opportunity for you? I said, yes, sir. It's a Money's about the same, but it keeps me in town. He said, well, I sell opportunity. So if this is a better opportunity, and that he released me. When he said that, he said, you, you have my permission to leave. <laughs> and he also said to me, which was very heartwarming, uh, anytime you want to come back, the door's open. And he didn't wow. say that to a lot of people. Yeah. So I, I went to work for this group. I grew up a little bit. I found Christ during that, that period away. And then when I when they the, my company wanted to do healthcare, and I wanted to leave that and get back into sales training, uh, I went back to Zig with open arms. He received me. Then in 2005, I wanted to write a book and I wanted to keep the residuals. I didn't want to share it, and I wanted to kind of have my own company but still be a part of the Ziegler Corporation as a contractor. So in 2005, I started my own business because I needed some equity. I, I told my mother, I think I'll work my way into the will. 
And she said, do you have a Z in your name? I said, no, I don't have a Z in my name. She said, then you, didn't you work your way into the will? <laughs> so it, it was time for me to venture out on my own. And, and I still worked for him really until 2015. He, he passed away in November of 2012. He retired in 2010. But his son has taken the company in a different direction, a good direction. But it really didn't have corporate training in it. So that, that's why that uh, I've not been affiliated with Ziegler for several years is that I wanted to be a corporate trainer. That's amazing. I, especially, you, you said it very quickly, but you said Zig retired in 2010 and two years later passed away. Yeah. So he was working right up to that wooden coffin. I mean. Yeah, he, had, he had a fall in his home in March of 2007, and that triggered his dementia. So he couldn't go on stage and, and, and remember what point comes next. So his daughter started traveling with him and she would interview him on stage and we'd get letters That's from incredible. people. I saw Julie and Zig on stage and I went home and I called my daddy. I hadn't talked to my daddy in two years. I went home and I was inspired. So it, it, he reached a lot of lives, even though he wasn't as lucid as he was in his prime. So as you are training other executives, corporations, sales staff, anything like that. What are the biggest obstacles that people in sales face or what is the most common problem that people that you've hired to go fix? I mean, what is the most common theme that you see? People fail in sales because they don't work hard. Please people elaborate. Yeah, that, that's a life lesson, not a sales lesson. The biggest problem I run into sales, most people don't want to be salespeople. And so they want to use a euphemism of executive counselor, advisor, financial assistant. We're salespeople. We've done a poor job of selling our profession to the next generation. Now at A&M, I think Dr. Jones at A&M, Eli Jones at A&M is putting together a, a nationwide best program on selling. He did that at Houston, University of Houston, and he's doing that. He did that at LSU, University of Arkansas, and I think he's back to his home roots of, of Texas A&M. Those universities are about 50 in the nation that are raising up a new generation of salespeople. But Micah, the biggest thing I see for people your age, and I'm picking on you a little bit, is that you hide behind social media. We, we've, te we've taught people how to use their thumbs on a device. We've never taught people how to shake hands. These younger people getting into sales, they're missing the relationship element. They can contact people. They can identify people. They can connect with people through internet. But what do you say once you get there? See, that's the problem they have. They don't know what to say. And what happens, the number one mistake they do, they put their passion ahead of their talent, and they oversell the product. Let me get to the product as quickly as I can. That's my comfort zone. As opposed to putting your product behind your back and saying, where's your, well, Pogo, what are your goals? What are your obstacles? And if you reach those, what's the benefit? If I can help you get there, would that be beneficial enough to take a look at my recommendation? Well, now I'm going to present my product. But the biggest problem, the number one mistake people make is that they, they lead with product. They don't lead with need in my humble opinion. That's accurate. I, I, I don't disagree on the, the front of we've lost that personal connection 
um, the environment. I, I, to backtrack a little bit, I grew up during the transition from, you know, I'm going next door to go hang out with my friend and, and we may go play outside in the cul-de-sac to, oh, we now have a wireless phone on, <laughs> on the wall over here. Now there's caller ID. Wait, you have a cell phone? What's a cell, a mobile phone? A cell phone is, does it have a brain cell in there? I don't know what this is. And then um, transitioning all the way till I was in high school when I got my first cell phone and you had a limit to how many you could text and and all that. So I've seen my personal roots rooted in that personal connection and that friendship that's face to face, not FaceTime, but actual FaceTime. And while I agree to an extent that especially the generations that didn't grow up like that, uh, even like I did, they're they're not getting that. My nephews, for example, they get in front of people and they get real awkward sometimes, <laughs> you know, because they don't know how to interact. Now you get them on social media and it, see, it seems normal on social media, but in person, it's very different. The, the only caveat I'll add is that while we don't, like I'm admitting, we don't always know what to say in person. We don't know how to interact in person. We don't know how to communicate non-verbally in person, even by what, what we wear sometimes, right? The difference is we've also adapted. So the new um, influencers on social media, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, that sort of thing, they are selling to the generation that's only on social media by promoting it in a way that is I don't know, enticing, whether it's on TikTok, like you and I've talked about, I still don't exactly know how that all works or whatever, um, but they're finding ways to use that media to then sell, promote, which to me, promotion is selling yourself, right? So selling in general, they're, they're adding that new whole segment to our society of social media sales. So I agree, in person, not that great, but they have learned, we have learned and adapted with the technology that's been given to us to then go and sell. I mean, well, but I, I think we, we've been blessed with having the media that makes it easy for us to go. I don't think we're spending time learning how to sell. Okay. Explain. What do you I mean? Think I, I think I can contact you. Hey, Michael, we're on LinkedIn. I see you've got a friend that you went to A&M with, and I've got a buddy that's about the same age, and I'd like to sit down with you for five minutes and discuss your business. I can do that. I can do that through Facebook. I don't know about instant chat or whatever it is, Snapchat, <laughs> whatever those are, you know, the Twitters of the world. I, I'm just yeah, not on yeah. those, those outlets. But what do I do when I, when I get there? What, what do I do when we're sitting at a coffee shop or in your office? If I don't have a sales process, then I'm speaking. I'm not selling. I'm just talking. And what happens, we have a tendency to over-explain our products and under-explain the solution our product brings. And, and that's what I'm running. You asked earlier, what's the challenge? And the challenge is having, like, I'm, I'm a believer that selling is a process, not a personality. When I was only using my personality, my gosh, I was bad. When I got a process, <laughs> everything changed. I had enough confidence to know when to use my personality. But process takes pressure off the person both the salesperson and the prospect person. And if you don't, I, I, I'm working on this. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm rambling here. I'm working on this 
two sentences that don't write them down. They're not worth it. Just because you have the ability, and you know this as a singer, just because you have the ability to carry a tune does not mean you had the ability to sing. Just because you had the ability to talk does not mean you had the ability to sell. That I, I've used that example in different words yeah. um, with other things. For example, there are only particular types of hats that I can wear that I don't look absolutely ridiculous in. Just because I have a head, doesn't mean that hat's going to look good on it or that hairstyle or whatever. Just because I can get into this suit doesn't mean I should wear it. <laughs> Very accurate. <laughs> that's, uh, that's something that whenever we got married, I told Elizabeth, I said, I really like trucker hats. I just don't look good in them. I look very odd. And she said, no, I mean, every, anybody can look good in a trucker hat. So I said, okay, find one. I put it on. She goes, yeah, we're not going to wear trucker hats anymore. <laughs> I said, I tried to tell you, I just know that they look good on other people. And I can admit that they look good on other people. That hat by itself looks great on the mannequin or whatever, but it does not look good on my head. So I think knowing personal limitations is, is a very healthy exercise as well. That's I right. Want, I want to know for the next generation, are you training up the next Padawan, the next, you know, Zig Ziglar to Brian Flanagan to question mark the next padawan to become the next jedi of sales like you did or are you handing it off in a different direction what's what's the goal corporately i'm involved with a couple of universities university of texas at dallas has a top five sales certification program in the marketing department so a student can go through utd and concentrate in sales and have 12 to 15 hours of sales credits within the marketing degree Corporate America is looking for those kids because next Wednesday, I'll spend half a day, unfortunately, virtually, and I'll have maybe 10 kids that do 15-minute sales calls, and they're being in a, they're in a room with 10, they're, they're in a room with me, but 10 other people, sales managers, sales vice presidents, are grading these kids in the sales competition at UTD. So I'm, I'm involved with raising up that generation of salespeople because selling, selling has taken me around the world. Selling is, is, I could put my children in the college of their choice. Why Patrick wanted to go to LSU, I don't know. But selling- Me neither. <laughs> yeah. It was still accredited when he was there. And what happens is that I think that we need to have a new generation of salespeople. I think we sell our way out of recessions. I don't think we legislate our way out of recessions. So corporately, I'm trying to do that. I've worked with the University of Florida, University of North Carolina, et cetera, et cetera. On the individual side, I've, I've been looking for a replacement for me. And I, I've, I've come close. We've got a couple of guys that, and right now they're both men, that, that I'm trying to sponsor, mentor, whatever. We've used some with one of the large manufacturing companies earlier this year. Uh, he learned my program. He went out. When I was in one city, he was in the other city. So we've done some of that. But I, I, my, my legacy is, is already set. I, I'm not worried about, I don't worry about legacy. And so when I want to retire, somebody may take my book of business. It's not going to be worth very much because there's no collateral. It's just training relationships. So I'm, I'm looking for somebody that would may take my product, learn it and go sell it. And they give me a royalty. That's fine. If not, Go get them tiger. 
but I'm not, I haven't found that one person that I'm settled on yet. Well, I guess in a way, whatever the other side of the coin to a trick question is you, you have that answer. You know, I said, are you training the one pad one? Well, yes. And then some, you know, you're, you're not just training one, you're training. It sounds like classfuls of, of students up and coming into the, the new generation. And just for anybody listening, this is something I went through when I was a financial planner, wrapping my mind around what, what is actual sales and really that can, I'm sure you could elaborate more eloquently than I could, but it can apply to so many different things, whether it's a, a subtle decision about where we're going for dinner uh, to will you marry me or for me trying to convince my child to do something that I know makes perfect sense and is completely healthy for you and is actually a really great decision. But I got to sell that little girl on why it's a good decision for her, you know, and what need does that fit for her? Um, so I know sometimes people recoil at the word sales sure. when the fact is it's, it's involving a lot of what we already are doing. It's just not on our business card. Everybody, Robert Louis Stevenson said, everybody makes a living selling something. The problem is everybody's in sales. Only the successful ones admit it. <laughs> That's that's accurate. It took me a while even just to admit that I I am a salesman as a financial planner because for for me in my head I was all about the relationship and getting to know somebody and seeing is there a way that I can actually either bring peace to your situation or add value to what you already have going on. And it's about the person. When, yeah, when we first met, I always my impression was that you in the service business, you're selling or servicing the relationship that you developed. And trying to, I, I'm a big believer that that the greatest play in baseball is a sacrifice bunt. Because the kid gives himself up to put a man from first to second so they can reach home safely. But coaching your kids, they don't want to bunt, they want to hit away. And it's a big sacrifice. They got to wait nine other people to get back in the batter's box. Well, that's what salespeople do. Sometimes we got to sacrifice long hours, traveling asking hard questions, eating a little humble pie. But if you're really selling, you're putting your daughter or your friend or your client in a position to reach home safely. And that, that's what we do. If, if I don't help you reach home safely, whatever safely means, then I, I'm not going to make a sale. I like that. I wish I had I'd known you a few years prior. <laughs> it would have, would have definitely helped me out. But I think you know, things are landing right where they are. Now I get to focus on exactly what you and I did in that coffee shop, which is building a relationship, building a friendship, getting to know one another um, and, and hearing, I mean, what the incredible things are that you're doing. That's what this whole show is about in the first place, just giving you that platform. I, I want to know as you, we, we talked about this a little bit with the goal of what, what's your greatest achievement professionally but as you continue through your life, what's the one thing, if it happened, that you would look back knowing you did what you were made for? And I, I'm speaking more so in a professional sense, but if you want to offer up a personal. Well, and, and Michael, one of my buddies who's gone through a lot of turmoil in his life with his nuclear family, then his wife, he's divorced, he's got an estranged daughter, et cetera, et cetera. And, and he asked me many years ago, well, what's your motivation? I said, very simple, one word, family. No, no, I mean, what's your real motivation? 
wait a minute. Well, he didn't have a family. I wasn't so lying the did. first time I told you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Personally, uh, my, my wife is my, is my greatest accomplishment said in a very positive way. Um, yeah, I just have so much admiration for her. Uh, the children come next. I mean, er earthly mound, the children come next. Uh, I was a pretty good son. I think mom and dad were proud of me. Uh, one of the things <laughs> that my dad died when I was 20, and I tell, I tell my children, I didn't have an adult relationship with him. But what I did have was that when he died, he knew I loved him, and I knew he loved me. And if I can die that way with my children, ain't a bad way to go. I mean, that, 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 that was a linchpin there. Uh, I, I found my calling, if you will, probably in 19, well, I was, I was 36 when I got into this business. I, I wanted to coach tall people. <laughs> I wanted to teach tall people. I, I was going to be a high school basketball coach, and there's just no money in Louisiana with two people, two a married couple, both teaching school back in the 70s. Whoa. Not, not a lot has changed. I can say that having both of us been teachers yeah, no, in this I mean, family. You, yeah, you, you've lived that and you've lived it recently. So magnify yes. that. So getting into something that I always wanted to do, the reason I left IBM, IBM only allowed you to do a specific job for two to three years. In other words, I could sell. I was a salesman. I got to marketing training. I was a trainer. I got to sales manager. I was a manager. Well, Zig allowed me to create products, sell the products, train the products, and at some time manage a team of people. So I could be in the same company doing all the things I liked as opposed to with IBM, they segmented you over time blocks. So that's really one of the reasons I could sell, train, and manage and, and not have to change careers or change cities that sometimes you have to do with IBM. So that I found that calling and, and I do have a passion for salespeople that want to be successful, but they just had the tumblers haven't come into place. They're still, I, I struggled with it for, I mean, look, I was raised the same way you were. Your mother told you the same thing my mom told me. Don't talk to strangers. Don't ask people for money. So I went into sales. So some people are <laughs> counterintuitive and I try to make it easy. I try to take the mystique out of selling my my uh friends and my mom but my mom is who i got this from so i thought it was a little hypocritical and i say that little tongue-in-cheek but i always got the micah you talk too much so my joke was okay i became a teacher and then i became a financial planner where i'm talking a bit and now i'm hosting a podcast so yeah i do i'm gonna just own it and make it my life <laughs> As we start I think, to, I think, that worked, I think that worked out very well. <laughs> use it to my advantage, right? Yeah. <laughs> Have a job where I'm literally talking to middle schoolers all day long. And then it finally, after, you know, two years of, of teaching, it was kind of in my rough second year of teaching. I discovered that, oh, my students actually learn more when I talk less. Shocking. Right? And so do customers. Yeah, that applies to, uh, as I say, big students, right? <laughs> Adult yeah. students. Across the board. I may have told you this before, and I think I've even said this on the podcast, but my philosophy is that adults are middle schoolers with better masks. Yeah, 
yeah. and get them on vacation and they look identical. But um, as we start to wrap up here, I wanted to know, this is a, just kind of the way I like to land this plane, any interview that I have, what encouragement would you give to those listening? And if you want to answer this kind of, it might be the same answer. What encouragement would you give to those in sales right now, especially during the pandemic? I know plenty of people are facing tough times and any encouragement would help, even if it's from an LSU tiger. Yeah. And, and it's something that I've had to use myself. I have, I've gotten back during this pandemic, I've gotten back into reading my daily devotional Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest written in 1917. Toughest three minutes of my day is going through Oswald Chambers. So one of the things we need to have is, is a discipline. If you want to have five minutes of great inspiration Go to YouTube or PragerU, P-R-A-G-E-R-U.com, PragerUniversity.com. Whatever you find this guy, find a, a former, former Navy SEAL named Jocko Willink. Have you, you heard have, You have hit the jackpot or the jockpot, I guess. Um, I am you, – you just stepped on a landmine. This, I am the biggest fan of Jocko Willink. And I'm a big fan of his podcasts, his books. I've promoted them. I've even got stickers on the water bottle that you don't have of mine, uh, the one that's here. Got stickers of the, his phrases, stand by to get some. Um, uh, gosh, I can't even remember. I don't have it in front of me. But, yes, I'm, I've definitely heard of Jocko Willink. Please continue. Well, discipline equals freedom. That's the sticker. That's the sticker I have on there. Now, my, my vision – we, we teach in sales, you get new information, you have a chance to make a new decision. People only make new decisions when they have new information. So I love, I love motivation, but what Jocko taught me was that motivation is kind of a intangible, but discipline is a little bit more measurable, and it's a little bit more action-based than thought-based or emotion-based. And I really like that. Discipline will set you free. So one of the things we need to do is realize, number one, that our skills are still solid. Even though we've gone through the pandemic, we don't have the face-to-face when some selling situations, it's more technology-based now, that's okay. But you still have skills. And no matter where you are, two things make a difference in your success. And this is especially true with this pandemic. Number one, work ethic. You better have a work ethic. Again, dad taught me to play all nine innings. And number two, self-belief. I can't give away something I don't have. So if I don't believe that I can serve you, I deserve to serve you, then it's not going to be as successful. So those are two things that, that I work on is, is continuing to hold myself accountable with a work ethic and remember that you still have skills. Don't compare the circumstances to your abilities. Your, your ability not to wear a trucker's hat doesn't mean you're a bad-looking guy. Well, but it doesn't mean that you have lesser <laughs> skills or abilities. What it means is you have a different circumstance. Subjectively, not too bad-looking, but we'll, <laughs> we'll save that for another time. <laughs> I appreciate what you just said. Um, even just the the self-worth and the deserving aspect. That's something that I personally have, have always fought with internally. Um, I was actually taught growing up by my dad that we deserve nothing. 
And if we get something, we should be grateful. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was drilled in me so much. And to his credit, I, I think that there is definitely a healthy limit with which to understand that, believe that, that sort of thing. Um, but it, it became such a, an issue in my mind that I literally deserved nothing. So even when I had worked hard for something and, and earned it, yeah. still didn't de- I didn't deserve it. I earned it. And somebody would say, look, what, man, you, you deserve what you got. Good job. Way to go. And no, 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 no. I didn't deserve this. I earned it. And they're like, well, that's the same thing. No, no, no. It, it has to be different in my mind. <laughs> so I, I appreciate what you're saying because I think a lot of people deal with self-confidence issues. Uh, sometimes it's too much self-confidence. Sometimes not enough. Works both ways. That's exactly right. An, an extension of a strength can become a weakness. Absolutely. And um, one thing that I'll say to people out there who are maybe dealing with self-confidence, uh, if you if you realize that people aren't aren't helping uh, or people don't understand, you know what you're going through, the symptom of a complete lack of self-confidence and the symptom of an abundance of self-confidence is the same. You're looking for the spotlight, whether it's for affirmation or um, confirmation. And and I definitely was the affirm. I needed somebody to tell me, no, you're actually worth something. Because uh, I had no confidence, and I think what you're talking about here, Brian, is going to really help people that are listening. And, and maybe they listened in thinking he's the sales guru; he's going to tell us about sales. And I hope that they they leave this conversation having a more healthy perspective of themselves. Well, you reminded me of some things, so thank you. Some of these things oh. I, was below the surface, so thank you for surfacing those areas. Sure, yeah. I appreciate that. Um, last but not least, as we close out this, would love to know again the name of your company and how people can best contact you to yeah. maybe speak at their company. Thank you. Flanagan Training Group is my company. The website is www.flanagantraining.com and it's spelled F-L-A-N-A-G-A-N training. If you've got pen or pencil, my phone number is 214 214- 505-5109. And the email address is brian at flanagantraining.com. And that's B-R-Y-A-N. B-R-Y-A-N, spell <laughs> the correct way. There you go. Yeah, I know um, I've, I've got a couple friends that are named Brian and uh, I have to, okay, is that the I or the Y? That's the Y. Yeah, well, they only have one eye. Yeah, you see, the guys that spell it incorrectly only have one eye. <laughs> you ready for a dad joke? There you go. You want to make, okay. you want to match some dad jokes? Let's let's do it. Let's close out the show with a good dad joke. Why don't blind people skydive? It scares their dogs. <laughs> and when blind people do skydive, how do they realize they're getting close to the ground? The leash gets slack. Oh my god, folks, <laughs> that is Brian Flanagan. <laughs> I appreciate you being on this show, and I That's hope my- that people are laughing because I certainly am. I've got four dogs, and I still find that joke hilarious. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself. Be safe. Yes, sir. Same to you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Micah Brown podcast with Brian Flanagan. I hope you enjoyed laughing as much as I did, uh, especially with the final 
<laughs> nail in the coffin of the dad joke. Um, ooh, nail in the coffin. Dog leash. Rough. Hey! That was not intentional. Anyway, wanted to once again reiterate the ways that he said you could get in contact with him. That's flanagantraining.com is the website for his company. That's F-L-A-N-A-G-A-N training.com. Flanagan has all A's in it as far as, far as vowels go. Uh, again, Brian at flanagantraining.com is his email address. That's B-R-Y-A-N. And last but not least, he gave out his cell phone number, so I will also uh, be sure to give out his cell phone number. But Brian's number is 214-505-5109. Let him know that you heard him on the podcast. I'm sure he'll uh, cringe at that and probably wonder what you remember and what you don't, uh, just because he likes to be comical like that. Nonetheless, I hope you have a takeaway from this episode that you enjoyed. Uh, that you learned, and maybe some encouragement. Finally, he does have a book. He didn't even mention it. Uh, he, he might have, I mean, he mentioned writing one, but he didn't mention the title. It's So You're New to Sales. You can definitely find that on the interwebs. Uh, in fact, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, probably get it with Prime. But it is also on Audible. So you can get it on Amazon for about 29 bucks. You can also get it on Audible. And if you want to listen to that for free, you can do that by going to audibletrial.com forward slash MBP. That'll get you the free 30-day trial. If you knock it out within 30 days, it doesn't cost you any money. Um, just an idea. I would recommend keeping your trial so that you can continue listening to audiobooks that we recommend here on the podcast. But... Uh, Brian has some amazing tidbits of wisdom, even in his book. And I think that you'll definitely enjoy it and learn something and be encouraged. So thank you so much for listening today. By all means, connect to us on all the social media platforms from whatever platform you're listening from, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or even Stitcher that we're now a part of. So connect to us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm even on LinkedIn. You can just find me by searching Micah Brown. You'll notice because I do have my logo uh, and my slogan in my header picture or my profile picture, which is myself. Thank you so much for listening. Y'all have a wonderful day and we'll see you next time.